Well, today is part three, the, the final installment in this collection of talks called DNR, Do Not Resuscitate. Maybe the most morbid sermon history in the sermon series in the history of the world. Am I right? I don't know if you get any more morbid than a DNR, do not resuscitate. It, um, in the creative process, it came down to DNR or you go girl. And uh, DNR just won in a coin flip. I don't know what to tell you, it won in a coin flip. No, I'm just playing. Um, so DNR, what we did is we looked at the reality that every January that people, um, they start to look at the new year. And this year you started to look at the new decade and you started to dream about the new you that you wanted to be. And we know that the prevailing message of culture is you got this. It's you go, girl. And we decided that there, the reality is, is that there's some things that you're not just going to have to do, but some things that you're going to have to die to if you want to live the life that you're destined for. And I don't know about you, but can we just agree that the last two weeks, Pastor Stephen brought the house down. Can we, share, can we show him some love? So good. Man, as we looked at the reality that if we want a life full of peace, that we're gonna have to DNR worry. We're gonna have to stop letting worry win. That if we want a life of freedom, that we're gonna have to DNR approval. We're gonna have to stop allowing what others think to be bigger than what God thinks if we want to live the life that we were created for. And today, um, I wanna tell you a story to set up where we're going. My wife, um, she recently developed this um, bad habit of watching um, terrible television shows, okay? Any of your wives watch terrible television shows? My wife does. I need a counselor, all right? So she started by watching The Bachelor and then The Bachelorette and then like The Bachelor in Paradise, Pray for My Wife, okay? And so then it got really bad. It took a next level when she began to watch Dancing with the Stars. Now I'm a good husband. Love my wife like Christ loved the church. So I watched Dancing the Stars with her in Jesus' name, okay? Dying to myself, fellas, this is discipleship. And so I started watching Dancing with the Stars with my girl and I, I got hooked, if I could just be real. Um, I started to see people that I knew. There was um, Ann Flannery from The Office. Any Office fans? And so she's on there. There was, um, there was uh, James Vanderbeek from Dawson's Creek. I don't wanna... For my life to be over, right? It just took me back to my childhood. I loved it. Um, that was so embarrassing. <laughs> but then there was Kel from Keenan and Kel. Do any of y'all remember Kel from like Good Burger? Welcome to Good Burger, home of the Good Burger. Can I take your order? Nickelodeon, all my childhood. And he's on Dancing with the Stars, okay? And so they run, and he's actually a phenomenal dancer. It's very impressive. But they run this package on Kel to kind of show what his life has been like since Good Burger. And you know, he's acted in things and he's amassed for himself this fortune and he's done quite well for himself. But, but you see in this little package that they're running during Dancing with the Stars that Kel left all that behind. He's left his acting career behind. He met Jesus and now he's a youth pastor, okay? And so when they... When when they show that part of the segment, when they go, Kel left everything behind to become a youth pastor, my wife says out loud, who would do that? <laughs> I did that. For 10 years of my life, I did that, right? Um, and it was a really funny moment for my wife and I to share together. Um, but the reality is, is that's the call of the Christian, the call of the Christian is to leave behind everything, lay it at the feet of Jesus, put your yes on the table and let him put it on the map 
to say, Jesus, have your way with me. My life is not my own. I belong to you. I'm a new creation. And so today what we're going to talk about is just that. We're going to talk about the easy, breezy, carefree reality that if you want to live, it's going to come up. If you want to live, then you have to die. Welcome to church. It's going to be a great Sunday. Happy New Year. We're going to do this. We're going to DNR. Let's just put it up there. DNR, self. DNR, self. So I just want you to turn to your neighbor real quick and say, today's a great day to die. (laughs) Believe it. Now turn back to him and say, calm down, Bruce Willis. (laughs) Today is a great day day to die. As much as that statement sounds like a Bruce Willis quote from Die Hard, it actually is attributed historically to ancient Native American tribes. Ancient Native American tribes would use this phrase, today is a great day to die. And they would use it to conjure up the courage to go into a battle where fate seemed inevitable, but victory would change everything. And that's the invitation today. Certain fate, unfathomable victory. Today is a great day to die. And today is gonna be a difficult day to hear. Today is going to be heavy. Today is going to be intense. If I could be honest, today I'm gonna preach a sermon that if I'm being real with you, I don't even wanna preach. I tried to get out of it this week, really I did. But I love you. I love you so much, and I need you to know that. But I love God's word too. And sometimes you and I, in love, need the stinging nudge of God's word to wake us up, to wake us up from the Disneyland of the American dream, to realize that there are people who are dying without Jesus because we won't die to ourselves. And so today is an invitation to die, that's where we're going, that's where we're headed. And so I thought what better way to start today than by reading the sermon of someone who has died, someone who did die to themselves that others might live. What better way to start this day on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend than by reading an excerpt from one of his sermons that he wrote in 1956 in Birmingham, Alabama. And it's a sermon that's so applicable for us today in the Disneyland of the American dream and it's It's a sermon titled, Paul's Letter to the American Christians. Let me read it for you. I'm impelled to write to you concerning the responsibilities laid upon you to live as Christians in the midst of an unchristian world. This is what I had to do. This is what every Christian has to do. But I understand that there are many Christians in America who give their ultimate allegiance to man-made systems and customs. They're afraid to be different. Their great concern is to be accepted socially. For so many of you, morality is merely group consensus. In your modern sociological lingo, the mores are accepted as the rights. You are unconsciously, you have unconsciously come to believe that right is discovered by taking some sort of Gallup poll of the majority opinion. How many are giving their ultimate allegiance to this way? 
But American Christians, I must say to you this, as I said to the Roman Christians years ago, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or as I said to the Philippian Christians, ye are a colony of heaven. This means that although you live in the colony of time, your ultimate allegiance is to the empire of eternity. You have a dual citizenry. You live both in time and eternity, both in heaven and on earth. Therefore, your ultimate allegiance is not to government, not to state, not to nation, not to any man-made institution, and not to self. The Christian owes his ultimate allegiance to God. And if anything here on earth, if any earthly institution conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to take your stand against it. You must never allow the transitory, evanescent demands of man-made institutions to take precedence over the eternal demands of the almighty God. Amen? Amen. The invitation today is an invitation to come and die. And I believe that today is a great day to die. That statement sounds an awful lot like what Jesus said in Luke 9 and in Mark 10 and in Matthew 16, where Jesus talks to his disciples and he tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will surely find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now it starts with good news, can we agree? If anyone, everyone, it's an open invitation. The inclusivity of Jesus is unimaginable. It's a message that it doesn't matter where you're coming from today. It doesn't matter what you carried in here today. Jesus can get past your past. He can deal with your demons and he loves you right where you're at. It's good news. Everyone is welcome. Anyone can come. No qualifiers or prerequisites if anyone would come after me. But make no mistake, Jesus is not a salesman. He is not running a marketing business. He is not a con artist. And he's not trying to trick you and I into anything. Jesus is extremely clear about the cost of being his disciple And so let me try to be clear today. Salvation costs you nothing, but discipleship will cost you everything. Salvation happens in a moment. Discipleship will take the rest of your life. Salvation is something that God does for you. Discipleship is something that you do with God. And so we raise our hand here to receive salvation, but we surrender our lives to be Jesus' disciple. That's our culture. You see, some only preach a gospel of decision, not a gospel of discipleship. And a gospel of decision produces disillusionment with Jesus, not devotion to him. It produces disillusionment with Jesus because people who respond to a gospel of decision soon realize that Jesus doesn't just meet all your demands that he's not a butler in the sky to fetch all your needs. 
You see many hear this gospel of, man, come to Jesus and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Follow Jesus and he'll make your life better. You know, the problem with that statement is just like the Bible. It's just the Bible that those statements are nowhere in there. I mean, the problem with that is um, like see Job or uh, Paul or any of the disciples whose lives certainly didn't get better when they started to follow Jesus. All it would take is for you to read Hebrews 11 to realize that I don't know whether or not God's gonna make your life better or worse, but I do know that he'll make your life matter. It's the truth of the gospel. He might not make your life better, but he'll make your life matter. And somewhere along the way, many of us so painfully adopted or were sold on this confused version of Christianity that mistakes the gospel to be something that serves us rather than transforms us. We buy into this gospel that's about giving, about God doing something for us rather than God doing something in us. We turn the Christian life into being about being blessed as opposed to be about being changed. This thing was about us being changed, not about us being blessed. Jesus is, isn't as concerned with getting you into some ambiguous party called heaven as much as he's concerned with getting heaven into you, with letting eternal life come forth. And the only way that that happens is through death. It's this backwards, upside down, inside way out of living that is so counterintuitive to the way that most of us live. It's, it's a call to die, and today is a great day to die. Jesus invites us to deny ourselves, and that's the really difficult part, to deny ourselves, to renounce our rights, to say no to self, to say yes to God, to lay down everything that we are and embrace everything that he is. It's this invitation to deny ourselves. And that's tough for us in our culture, right? Because culture don't tell you deny yourself. Culture tells you treat yourself. Doesn't it? Treat yourself, girlfriend. You deserve it. Go get your nails done. That's what culture tells you. It says treat yourself, not deny yourself. Our culture actually says you don't need to deny yourself anything, doesn't it? You don't need to deny yourself sexual experiences. You don't need to deny exploring substances. You don't, no one can deny you. People can't deny you the way that you think. People can't deny the things that you say. People can't deny what you want to do with your body. It's your body. Don't let anybody deny you what you can do with your body. Don't let anybody deny who you are. If you are, a per be that person. No one can deny you. You think it, feel it, go get it. You even deserve it. Treat yourself. That's the message of culture. But then here comes Jesus and he says, no, 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 don't treat yourself, don't indulge yourself, deny yourself. This is Jesus' words, it's red letters, There's no, it's not left up to interpretation. It's crystal clear, plain as day, deny yourself. Deny yourself. The message of culture is get for yourself. The message of Jesus is deny yourself. And he doesn't just say deny yourself, he says deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, in the Roman government, in the Roman Empire, before they ever hung a criminal on a cross, they hung a cross on a criminal. Criminals were called to carry their own cross. And it was this statement, it was this marking that, that this person is carrying out a death sentence, that they are taking a one-way journey that they're never going to come back from. Carrying a cross was this understanding that this person is a dead man walking, 
And when Jesus invites us to carry our cross, he's asking us if we're willing to become dead people walking, to die to ourself, our way, our rights, and to live with him. It's this invitation to come and die. And then he says something that's so interesting in light of where we're at as a culture. I love this part, don't miss it. In verse 25, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now I just gotta be real. When I read that, my millennial mind is like, what language are you speaking, Jesus? I'm like, I'm not trying, I'm like, that is a foreign language to me. Don't try to find myself. Okay, millennial, like that's all we're trying to do is find ourselves. Haven't you heard Jesus? 30s are the new 20s, hello. I'm out here trying to find myself, right? You might think I'm going through a midlife crisis or that I like just trying to, I'm finding myself, okay? That's what I'm doing. I know that it might look like I'm a hippie who's out in the desert smoking some reefer, playing a saxophone, half naked at Coachella, but I'm just soul searching. Maybe I'm a barista, maybe I'm an artista, but I'm definitely not a Capricorn, okay? I'm not a Capricorn. I know that like I'm a three on the Enneagram and I'm a D on the disc and I'm an ENFP who's got ADHD and I'm just looking for me, right? Like I'm trying to find myself out here. Isn't it interesting that we've got a generation and many of you in the room who are trying to find yourself, but you can't find yourself. And I wonder if the reason is it's only, be, it's only when you lose yourself that you actually find yourself. You're never gonna find who you are and why you're here and what your life was meant for until you get to the end of yourself. It's at the end of yourself that life really begins, that purpose begins, that significance begins, that fulfillment begins. It's in that place and in that space that purpose is found. Jesus knows this beautiful truth is this counterintuitive, upside down, backwards way of living where at the end of yourself, that's where life begins. So Jesus says, deny yourself, get over yourself, Lose your life if you want to find it. Have you ever wondered what's at the end of yourself? It's a great question to ask this morning. When you get past your prerogatives and your plans, your way of seeing the world, your way of doing things, what you think is right, what's there? What's on the other side of your selfishness? and your self-promotion, and your self-preservation. What's there when you and I get over making life all about us? What is there in that moment, in that space, in that place? Is it possible that it's better there? Is it possible that it's more fulfilling there? Is it possible that life was never really meant to be about you? Man, isn't that the, the message that culture feeds you? Culture, man, everything in our culture, in our context, particularly in this community is screaming, make life about you. Make it about you. Pursue pleasure. Get a big house. Drive a fancy car. Put up some shiplap. Make it about you. It's the message of culture, right? Get a vacation home, take a couple weeks off, sit by the pool, relax, you deserve it, you've earned it. And if I could just be real, 
There is this part of myself that living in this culture for the last seven, eight years where I feel parts of my heart hardening to the things of God, hardening to the ways of Jesus, hardening to the kind of resistant to the kind of self-sacrificing way of life that the scriptures so clearly demand. I find myself resistant to walking in the same self-sacrificing footsteps that my Savior walked in. Because the message is you matter and the message is you're enough and the message is you go, girl. The message is that it's all about you. And if I'm honest, I feel my flesh crawling. I feel my inside screaming. I feel my pride pouting. You deserve it. You've worked so hard. Make it about you. But I feel my soul dying. I feel my purpose waning. I feel eternity calling for something more. For another way to live where you and I wake up to the reality that it was never supposed to be about you. That it was always and only supposed to be about Jesus. Life centered on Jesus, starting with Jesus, only stopping with Jesus, beginning and ending with him. Life sustained by him, found in him, designed by him, lived for him. You're not the lead story, Jesus is. You're not the main character, Jesus is. You're not the most significant, Jesus is. And when you wake up to that reality, you will wake up to life full of peace and fulfillment and purpose and satisfaction. But when you make it all about you, you will find yourself trapped into a prison that you can never get out of. Life is not about you and it is not about me. Now, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I suffer from this disease and it's this disease called uh, FOMO. Anybody else suffer from this disease? Anybody, anybody not know what this disease is? Let me spell it out for you, fear of missing out. I suffer from this disease. Like if people are like having a conversation, I'm like, what you talking about? <laughs> if people are like going out to lunch, I'm like, oh, I'm coming, I'm going. Like, I'm gonna try it. People are like, hey, do you wanna try this anchovy? Like, so we were, we were in Singapore and I got offered to try this um, stingray with this like weird um, anchovy chili sauce thing on it. Does that sound delightful in any way? Appetizing? No? I tried it because I got a fear of missing out. I'm like, what if it's like the next caviar or calamari or who knows? And so I eat it and guys, I hate the first bite, but I eat the whole thing because I just believe it's gonna get better because I've got such fear of missing out, right? I've got this intense fear of missing out on activities and missing out on inside jokes and missing out on stories and I don't want something awesome to happen and for me to not be a part of it. And so I've got this fear of missing out. And you know what I've noticed? I've noticed that many of us have more fear of missing out on what the world has for us than what God has for us. Many of us are more concerned about missing out on a promotion than we are on missing out on our purpose. We're more concerned with missing out on some career step than missing out on our calling more concerned with missing our husband or our wife or our spouse or that mythical unicorn, she could have been the one. If I'd have just gone on the date, I could have found the one. So I gotta go on the date, because she might be the one. We're more concerned with that than we are having a relationship with the living God. 
who made us and who knows us inside out, who loves us more than we could possibly imagine. Do you have any fear of missing out on what God has for you on your 80 years on this planet? Or are you okay with your legacy just being your golf handicap and how many seashells you collect? Is that what you're scared of missing out on? Another golf course? Another hotel room? Some different leather in your car? Be real. This is what's sold to us. This is what's promoted for us. This is what we feel like we've got to get. I've got to get the bigger house. I've got to get the nicer car. And, and listen, I know some of you right now, you're like angry with me. Like you feel it in your soul. Like it's crawling. Like how dare you ask me those questions? How dare you tell me how big my house can be? How dare you ask me how much money I should have in my bank account? You feel it because you've been sold this message that it's about you. And I'm just here to tell you today that that's a lie. It's not about you. And I'm here to ask you to ask yourself the question, would Jesus be more magnified or less magnified if you had a smaller house? It's a tough question for me to ask myself. Would Jesus be more magnified or less magnified if there was less money in your savings account? Would Jesus be more magnified or less magnified if you went on less vacations and more mission trips? Just ask yourself the question, do we have more fear of missing out on what we can have for these 80 years? And do we have any fear of missing out on the eternity that God wants to place in us and what's gonna happen for the rest of time? I wonder today if we could embrace a little fear on God, I don't wanna miss what you have for me. I wanna see the purposes that you've got for my days. You know, you're, you, you make a living by what you get in life. But you leave a legacy by what you give. Giving your life away, getting to the end of yourself, that's where life is truly found. Now here's what I want you to know is that Jesus is asking us to deny ourselves of what robs ourselves of ultimate joy. Jesus is not trying to take anything from you, okay? He's not trying to take anything from you that would be for your good. I know that there's so many things right now that you're like, but let me hold on to this. I'll doubt all these other things, but let me hold on to this. No, 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 Jesus wants to, you to deny yourself of the thing that would rob yourself of ultimate joy. That's what Jesus wants to do. Jesus is in touch with the reality that you and I are our own worst enemies. The great philosopher Pink had it right. She knew it. You're your own worst enemy. No one's lied to you, hurt you, stolen from you, deceived you, tricked you, and trapped you more than you. You're your own worst enemy, and when you get to the end of you, you're much better to be around. I ask yourself this question, who's better to be around? Who's easier to be around? You are a dead person. I'm just saying, dead people are easy to be around. They don't speak up much, don't have a lot of aggressive opinions. You always know where they're at. They never complain because they're dead. When you die to yourself and get to the end of yourself, that's when you begin to live and that's when you begin to be the new creation that God's created you to be. So like ask yourself, are you easily frustrated? Do you always go to that's not fair and so I better get right? Are you easily offended? It's probably because you haven't died to yourself. What if we died to our right to be right? What if we died to our need to be celebrated and thanked and acknowledged and honored? What if, 
What if we died to comfort and convenience and luxury and retirement? What, what if we died to our bubble and our safety and to our way of seeing life? What if we died to all of these things that we think that we need and that are actually just holding us back? What if we died to them? Dying to myself, man, it looks like encouraging people even when I think that it means that I'll be forgotten or overlooked. Dying to myself looks like admitting when I, that I'm wrong. Dying to myself looks like serving my wife and waking up early with my daughter. Dying to myself looks like not using my wit or intellect to promote self-image. Dying to myself looks like serving others more than I demand others to serve me. And Jesus is inviting us to die to our desires and to die to our dreams and to die to our wills, right? Not my will, but yours be done. That's what death to self looks like when that's your anthem and that's your statement. And the thing that I love so much about Jesus is that he doesn't ask us to do anything that he is not willing to do. He actually doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself did not do. Now, I've just got this image in my mind, and I would love for you to hold this image in your mind when you think about the difficulty of dying to yourself today. Think about your Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's going to be executed, and he's there with his best friends, and he goes to pray, and his friends can't even hold on and pray with him. He's just alone by himself with his Father, and he's sweating drops of blood. He's got so much stress, so much anxiety that he is literally sweating blood. He's crying tears. And he cries out to his father. He goes, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus says to the father, I don't want to die. I'm not ready. I don't want to leave my friends. I don't want to feel that pain, that shame, that agony. I don't want all the sins of the world heaped upon me. I don't even know what that's going to be like. Jesus asks for the cup to be passed from him, and then he says, not my will, but yours be done, and Jesus dies, brutally dies, horrifically dies, carries his cross, and then is hung on a cross for you and me. We are called to walk in the footsteps of our Savior, and although our death may be, never be literal, there is a cross that every one of us are called to carry if we wanna follow Christ. So let me just get real with you. Jesus, he's not just staring at your soul this morning. He's looking at your schedule. He doesn't just know your motivations and what you meant to do. He knows your actions and what you actually did. You see, intention and motivation is extremely important in the Christian faith, but action is imperative. Scripture's clear, faith without works is dead. The idea of dying, the willingness to die, the, okay, I would die. That's all fine and good and cute, but Jesus says, no, 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 I actually want you to die. I want you to deny yourself. I want for there to be actions. I want you to put your money where your mouth is. I'm asking you, does your time and your talent and your money and your schedule communicate that your life is about you or that your life is about him? Where are you saying less of me, more of you? Jesus doesn't just like the idea of self-denial. He likes the action of self-denial. 
And that's what he's invited each and every one of us into. Now, there's this really interesting that happens when Dr. Luke, who has this impeccable attention to detail, recounts this interaction with Jesus. He adds one detail that Matthew failed to mention. He says this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Give me that word. Daily. Daily. And follow me. The invitation to die to oneself I would like for it to just kind of be this one big romantic moment, right? I'm a a big splash kind of guy. I don't know if you've noticed. But I would love for it to just be this one big self-sacrificing kind of moment where I die to myself and then it's over. But the truth is that death to self is daily. It doesn't just happen at baptism or conversion. It is an everyday death that you and I are called to die. It's not as much about this one big romantic gesture as it is the daily discipline of Elevating others above yourself, elevating Jesus above you. It's this daily discipline where we die to ourselves. And so how do we die? How do we get over ourselves? How do we stop letting ourselves hijack our joy? How do we let ourselves stop hijacking our purpose? How do we die every day? Here's the first way I'll tell you. And it might not seem significant, but I promise you it is. So you get really serious about prayer. You get really serious about prayer. Don't miss this part. Prayerlessness at its core is pride. Prayerlessness at its core is pride. When you don't pray, what you're saying is, I don't need you, God. I've got this. I'm in control. I'm most. I'm good. You see, we all pray when we know we need God, right? You lose that job, pray it up. You get sick, pray it up. When you know you can't do anything about it, then you pray. And so then if you don't pray, it's because you think that you're significant enough to handle life on your own. And so prayer, prayerlessness at its core is pride, but prayer is death to self. It's saying less of me, more of you. It's I need you, God. I'm desperate for you, God. Help me, God. Show me, God. Lead me, God. I don't know where I'd be without you. And hear me say this, it's not cute. It doesn't need to rhyme. It's not a chant or a cheer. It's a cry. It's desperate. It's on your knees. It's God, I need you more today than I did yesterday. It's this constant awareness of your sin and your need for a savior. It's asking God to put to death the things in your flesh that your soul may live. It's this work of the Holy Spirit where you realize that apart from him working and him moving, you will make life all about you. Do you know the reason that the Bible says pray without ceasing? It's because there's always part of you that needs crucifying. There's always parts of you that need to be chiseled away, parts of you that need to be melted, parts of me, parts of my pride, my selfishness, my ego that God wants to evaporate, that God wants to change and transform and make more like him. You take prayer really seriously. What if you prayed more this year? What if you prayed every day? You beg God to change you. You beg God to to elevate himself and move you to your your rightful place of elevating him. If, if you just join John the Baptist, less of me, more of him. He must increase, I must decrease. That is the prayer of my heart. You get really serious about prayer. Here's the other thing, man. You start to serve people. You start to really serve people. Man, there is something so significant that happens when you pour your life out for the poor when you sit with a group of students, when you sacrifice your Wednesday night for the sake of a generation, 
when you do something for someone who cannot pay you back. They don't, they don't have the means, the finances, the ability to pay you back or to get you next time. But you just, you selflessly go, here's my life, I'm gonna lay it down. You see, service of others is this attitude of denial of self, it's attitude and action. It's literally the personification is I'm not, I don't matter most. I will become subservient to you, not try to elevate and make much of myself, not have everybody look at me and look to me and think about me, but point to others, serve others, love others, care for others. Let me be totally transparent. There's some of you who are supposed to be serving in big ways and you're not. You're supposed to be leading Bible studies. You're supposed to be leading groups. You're supposed to be leading students, but you are more concerned with some TV program on a Tuesday night than, you're, than you are seeing lives transformed. And you need to die to yourself so that others can live. You need to serve others. And when you put yourself in that space, in that place, when you take that posture of, I'm gonna pour my life out for the good of others, parts of you just start to die. You start to embrace humility. You start to humble yourself for the sake of others. And it's this beautiful thing that happens. As others live, parts of you just start to die. Some of you need to serve other people. And then here's the, here's the last kind of little tidbit that I'm gonna give you on way that you need to die is, you need to never sacrifice his presence. You need to never sacrifice his presence. Self can never become bitter until Jesus becomes sweet. Self can never become bitter until Jesus becomes sweet. You're never gonna die until you realize how great God is. A lot of us, when we started following Jesus, when we said yes to Jesus, what we did is we, we said yes to a wedding but didn't realize we were signing up for a marriage. We all wanted a wedding. We wanted the moment where we could be forgiven of our sins and we could be made clean and made whole. But what we didn't realize is that it was a marriage, that it was, it, it was a commitment not just to salvation, but to discipleship, to walking with him every day. And it's in his presence that this relationship gets flushed out. And so never sacrifice his presence. It's in his presence that you learn about who he is and how much he loves you. It's where you get to hear his words spoken over you. It's where you get to see that he is enough to die for. That if all you get in the end is him, that it's enough. That it's not about you getting into heaven, that it's about you knowing him. It's in, the, it's, in, it's in his presence that you learn these things, that he's the bread of life that feeds you when your soul is starving, that he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother, that he is the father who welcomes home the prodigal, that he's the author of salvation who can firm up all your insecurities. It's in his presence. Stop sacrificing his presence. There's a lot of things to skimp on, but skimp on in life. Skimp on kale. Skimp on vitamins. Don't skim on his presence. Do not sacrifice his presence. What would happen to yourself if you got your eyes on the greatness of the glory of God? If you were fixated, if you were firmly planted in his presence, I think that a whole lot more of us would start to die. Early on in the story of Jesus, right after he's crucified and resurrected, one of the earliest followers is a guy by the name of Paul. And he writes this letter to the church at Galatia. And um, in Galatians 2.20, this is what he says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, we all love the story of Jesus crucified on the cross. 
What we don't love as much is that Jesus asks us to be crucified with him. And that's what Jesus is asking. Is he's saying the same thing that I have done for you, I want you to now turn around and do for others. I want for you, I want for your flesh to flatline. I want for you to pull the plug on your pride. I want for you to stop making life all about you and get into the rhythm of elevating people over you. I want for you to be crucified with Christ, no longer live, but live as Jesus lived, which is a life for other people. And it's so interesting that this scripture was written to the church at Galatia because there's some really interesting history about the Galatians. If you study Galatia, you will quickly find that it is unbelievable the fact that they ever won a single battle. If you study their military history, one of the first things that you'll look at is their geography. And the geography of Galatia is one of an indefensible plain. They have no natural fortification around them, no mountains or woods or structures that would keep foreign armies from coming to attack. They're completely out in the wilderness, naked, anybody's able to attack. And so how do the Galatians fight? How do they win wars? Well, the Galatians fought much differently. What the Galatians did, this is so interesting, is the Galatians would bring their wives and their children out to the battle lines. So interesting. And right before they went off to war, they would hug their kids and they would kiss their wives and they would say to them, they would go, hey, if we lose, then you guys are gonna change your names and you're gonna go with those guys. You're no longer gonna be my wife. I'm no longer even gonna be here. If we lose, I lose you and you go with them. But if I win, if we win, then I'm gonna come back home and I'm gonna grab you and I'm gonna hug you and I'm gonna kiss you and we're gonna go home and live happily ever after. And their families stood on the battle lines as war took place. And did you know that the Galatians did not lose a single battle for hundreds of years? Because you fight differently when you got a family to fight for and a kingdom to belong to. And a lot of you need to know that there are people out there who are on the battle lines of war, who are looking in on our lives and who are asking the question, are you willing to die to yourself so that I can live? There are people in your sphere of influence. There are people in your neighborhood. There are people in your family who are supposed to be a part of the family of God, who are supposed to come back home with us, who are supposed to find their home in Jesus. Are you willing to die to yourself so that they can live? Are you pouring yourself out? Are you making much of him? If Jesus was willing to die, can we be willing to die? Jesus was willing to deny himself. Can we deny ourselves? I don't know about you, but I don't just want to sing Christian songs and make Christian statements and not live a Christian life. A life that looks like Christ. A life that looks like I love other people more than I love my pride. A life that looks like opening my mouth no matter what it costs me. This life may cost you everything. It may cost you your job. It may cost you the promotion. It may cost you your comfy house and your new car. It may cost you saving face and looking cool. But others might live. You might live if you can get to the end of yourself.
Life begins when you and I end. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to be able to receive this word. God, I know it's a hard, hard word. It's a hard word for me to hear. But Jesus, I believe that life is better when I make it less about me and more about you. I believe that you are so worthy of being made much of. And God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for where I've made this whole thing about me. Where I've gotten preoccupied. Where I've lost focus. Where I've lost sight of the mission. God, I pray that you would help us to believe that today is a great day to die. 